On this episode of Blue 58, the Packers are still slowly filling out their coaching staff, but now two very intriguing names are in the mix. Then Joe Witt is off to Cleveland, but it's possible that may not be a bad thing. We'll explain why. Finally, as we start to review the 2018 season, let's look back at one of our biggest behind-the-scenes projects. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, excited to be with you here for another episode. And I really am. Whenever I say I'm excited, I, I really am. Because it's it's a lot of fun to do this, and it's it's just fun to talk Packers with people. Last couple of seasons haven't been all that great, but it's been fun to go through it together, kind of a systematic way, and, and talk our way through it. Now we get to do the offseason again. The offseason is always very interesting. Speaking of the offseason, we got to nail something down about our release schedule here. I know I'm a little bit, well, I don't want to say I'm late because this is going to be how things are going forward. We tried to do Tuesday, Thursday releases. I I just don't think that's going to be the best thing for us here. Uh, Releasing episodes on Wednesday and Friday just works better with my actual life and it's more similar to our in-season schedule where we have podcasts on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So that's what you can expect going forward. This is going to be the last change of the off-season month, or Wednesdays and Fridays is what it's going to be. So thank you for your patience. If you were wondering where the episode was yesterday, this is where. If you weren't wondering, that's probably even better. So with all that being said, let's talk some actual football. Packers coaching staff. They don't really have one yet. They're working on it, though. Matt LaFleur is bringing in folks for interviews, and there are two interesting names that came up in just the past couple days. One of them has a little bit more substance than the other as of right now, and that would be Frank Pollock. This and the other name, who we'll talk about in a second, is the first coaching news that has gotten me legitimately excited about the Packers coaching staff. Not that Nathaniel Hackett is bad news or Mike Pettin is bad news. This one is interesting, one, because it's new, two, because of who this guy is. Frank Pollock, the offensive line coach for the Cincinnati Bengals, who is caught up in the Bengals version of what the Packers are going through right now. He is losing his job there, now is on the market, and apparently he's going to talk to Matt LaFleur about becoming the Packers offensive line coach. Pollock's an interesting dude. He played for the 49ers uh, and apparently was on the Broncos roster. From 1990 through 1997, had two stints there with the 49ers. He coached in the NFL starting in 2007 or began coaching that year. His most notable work in the NFL to date has been with the Dallas Cowboys, where he was an assistant offensive line coach, then the head offensive line coach from 2013 through 2017. Then he joined the Bengals for 2018, and now he's on the market again. He is connected to Matt LaFleur via their time together in Houston near the start of LaFleur's coaching career. And it's a little bit unexpected that he is on the coaching market today. But that's how things go when you have a regime change. Some guys that you wouldn't necessarily expect to get on the open market find their way there. That's what happened with James Campen, James Campen and that's where we are now with Frank Pollock. Pollock is interesting to me for a few reasons. First, He seems to be a little bit more than just an offensive line coach. He gets involved with the offense, or at least he did in Dallas, in ways that you wouldn't normally expect. An interesting nugget came up in this Fort Worth Star-Telegram article from 2016. The Packers, we'll get this straight eventually, the Cowboys were playing the Bengals. Bengals get confusing because that's where he recently coached. Uh, Ended up totally hammering them. 
in part because of at least one contribution by Pollock to the offense. Here's the quote. Coach Jason Garrett said Pollock noticed how the Bengals were playing the naked bootleg off the play-action fake from Prescott. The ends were coming straight up the field and even hit Prescott in the face once in the first half. So Pollock came in at halftime, made a few adjustments to the design, and demanded the Cowboys call it on the first play of the second half. The result was a 60-yard touchdown run when Elliott went untouched up the middle, turning a 21-0 halftime lead into a 28-0 laugher. It was an example of how teams are already adjusting their schemes to account for Prescott's mobility. It's also an example of how the positive impact of the positive impact Pollock is having on the offensive line in his second full season of coaching the unit. He's a pretty brainy guy. He knows what's going on. He obviously has playing experience in the NFL, and he's putting that experience to good work. But in addition to all that brainy scouting behind the scenes stuff, he's very much your stereotypical offensive line coach. Big guy, six foot five, looks like he played in the NFL. Husky dude, looks like he could probably still take care of you if he had to, if it came to that. And it kind of seems like he has the sort of personality to do that as well. This quote from the Dayton Daily News uh, during this past season with the with the Bengals kind of kind of rams that home. Quote from Pollock: Football is aggressive. We're not out here playing chess, I know that. Last time I checked in football, you still got to kick the guy's butt across from you. Nothing's changed. You might be dissecting and looking at it as a chess match with the X's and O's, but somebody taught me a long time ago it's the Johnnies and Joes, not the X's and O's. You got to be in position to play fast, be physical, and dominate the opponent, the guy across from you. End quote. Sounds like a stereotypical offensive line guy. I kind of like that. But most importantly... He's just really good at his job. It's difficult to quantify the contributions of an offensive line coach, but one interesting analyst has done a pretty good job of doing that. We bring up the name Justice Mosqueda a lot here on this podcast. You could, you should check out his work at Optimum Scouting if you get the chance. In particular, this recent article. He has figured out a way, or he thinks he has, and I think he does a pretty good job here of quantifying the contributions of an offensive line coach. There are some limitations to this approach that we'll get to in a second, but all things considered, this is probably the best we've got. I'll read a bit from this article here and then explain where Pollock fits in. Justice is setting this up by saying he's attempting to figure out what sort of impact an offensive line coach has on the offensive line itself. Quote, In an attempt to do so, I tracked every current NFL offensive line coach's resume dating back to 2004 when we entered a pass-friendly era. What I tracked was two things, sack value and tackle for loss value for individual teams and individual seasons. If there are any easy counting stats that could be attributed and easily accessed to the performance of offensive linemen, it would be sacks and tackles for loss. The value system adjusts for what the NFL average in the stat was in a given year, giving it an error adjustment for rule changes and attributes attributes a plus-minus number that is tangible. From there, you match current offensive line coaches to teams which they had qualifying roles for, offensive line coach, offensive coordinator, and head coach, and boom, you find the value of offensive lines while these coaches have been in roles to heavily influence them. From there, we can try to answer questions like, how good is Dante Scarnecchia, the offensive line coach for the New England Patriots? 
The entire article is very worth the read. And I realize this is kind of a long way to get to the point. But in short, since 2004, Frank Pollock is the number five ranked offensive line coach in the NFL, according to Mosqueda's formula here. This is dependent on some external factors. Personnel plays a big issue here or plays a big role here. The Dallas Cowboys offensive line is going to be pretty good no matter who's coaching it because they've got a lot of good players on that offensive line. James Campen, for instance, um, in this measure was also hurt a little bit by personnel and not just off on the offensive line. He got hurt in this ranking in which he finished 16th out of all the qualifying coaches because the Packers gave up a lot of sacks during his tenure. But recently, the Packers have given up a lot of sacks for two reasons that Campen really, really can't control. They've been terrible at offensive guard, and Aaron Rodgers has been holding the ball longer and longer. This year, I think the Packers, I think Rodgers got sacked something like 51 times, and like 45 or 43 of those 51 sacks came on plays where he held the ball for longer than two and a half seconds. That's just an eternity. So it's not entirely the offensive line's fault that they were giving up sacks. But... All of that being said, Pollock's offensive lines have performed very well. Being the top five in anything, whether it's entirely your fault or somebody else's or whatever, is pretty good. And it's hard to fake being that good for that long because this, again, is dating back 14 years. Frank Pollock would be a good hire for the Packers, and I'm interested to see if they can get a deal done. I hope they can, and I hope he doesn't get out of Green Bay without a contract contract to stay in Green Bay. That's where I was trying to end that sentence, I guess. The second interesting name associated with the Packers coaching staff search this week is Luke Getze. You may remember that name for good reason. According to Tom Silverstein, the Packers are interested in bringing Getze back. And if the feeling is all mutual, and it could be, it sounds like it's going to get done. If Getze's at all interested in this job, whatever that may be, it sounds like the Packers want him to be back, and it sounds like he would come back. Currently, Getze is the offensive coordinator and wide receivers coach at Mississippi State. You probably remember his name from his time as the Packers wide receivers coach in 2016 and 2017. He came up with a whole bunch of inventive drills there. The man hands drill, where they stand right in front of the jugs machine and try to catch the ball as it comes rocketing out at full speed. He did the thing where he threw bricks to guys or at guys, depending on how you want to look at it, and and made them catch bricks, which seems like it would make your hands stronger. I don't know how that actually translates to work on the football field, but it sounds cool. Uh, He did a bunch of interesting hand-eye coordination stuff. Getsy was also an offensive quality control coach for the Packers in 2014 and 2015. If he would come back, it's not entirely clear what role he would play. The Packers do need a wide receivers coach. They also theoretically need a quarterback's coach. If Matt LaFleur ends up acting as the quarterback coach, Getsy could be the kind of guy who bridges the gap between the quarterbacks and wide receivers. It's always a good idea when you're dealing with Aaron Rodgers, and especially in a situation where you're dealing with a new offense, to help the receivers kind of adapt to the things that Rodgers likes to do. I think this would be a good hire. Uh, be a great name to have back in the organization, and if he's interested, might not be a bad place to stop by. Speaking of Packers assistant coaches, today, Joe Witt Jr. was officially officially joined the Cleveland Browns coaching staff, and I wanted to kind of put a bow on his tenure here by 
talking about a point made by um, Alex Patakis of the Acme Packing Company podcast, which is a great podcast, great show. You should listen to the work they they do there. Zach Rapport, uh, Alex Patakis, and Ben Foldy, great crew. They have a, a great um, rotating ga- cast of guests that come through there as well. I think they do a great job of advancing the conversation around the Packers in in a helpful way. And I mean this in the best possible way. If you listen to this show, I think you'll kind of get the sentiment. They are football dorks and just kind of general dorks who enjoy talking about the Packers and don't take it too seriously. I mean, they seem to understand that this is not the most serious thing in the world and they have fun with it while also taking it very seriously. That is my endorsement of the Acme Packing Company podcast. Check it out. Their most recent episode, Alex Patakis, one of their hosts there, made a good point about Joe Witt. Are we really sure that Joe Witt was such a great coach? Some of this is his stuff. Some of this is my interpretation of his stuff. So listen to the show to, to hear his full breakdown of it. But Joe Witt Jr. is consistently referred to as as a very good coach in Green Bay, and he may have been. He has the the respect of a lot of people in the Packers organization seemed to be very well regarded among the players he worked with great stuff there, but it never seemed like the Packers defensive backs were really all on the same page. And Alex points out, and I think this is a great point that a lot of that up through 2017 was blamed on Dom Capers and how complex his defense is. And it never really seemed like the, defensive backs could fully understand what's going on. But isn't that Joe Witt's job? To help them get on the same page with the defensive coordinator? To make sure that they understand where they're supposed to be at all at all times? Isn't that exactly what he's supposed to be doing? And if he couldn't ever get that done in the time he was the defensive backs coach, how great a coach was he really? I mean, you look at James Campen, and obviously he's had a lot more to work with, but he also made a lot of hay with guys that weren't necessarily that great. He taught a lot of offensive tackles how to play guard in the NFL. He developed a lot of depth for the Packers at center. The Packers haven't had a backup center in years, and they haven't needed one really since J.C. Treader left. But they were always able to get those guys ready to play. It doesn't seem like Joe Witt was ever able to accomplish that sort of same thing with the defensive back group the Packers had. And there are some personnel issues there to be sure. There's been a lot of flux at the defensive back position, all of them. Uh, There's a lot, there are a lot of corners who never really played corner before they got to Green Bay. That's an entirely different ball of wax. But at a certain point, shouldn't they just be better than they were? He did help a lot of guys be pretty okay, but it just seemed like maybe there should have been some better results there. Maybe he'll go on to have great success with the Cleveland Cleveland Browns, but maybe it's okay that he moved on too. Further, I mean, just more broadly than Joe Witt, how big a difference does a position coach really make? Reading some of the stuff around the league about these position coaches, sometimes I wonder if it's more about not getting in the way than really about coaching guys up because schematically there's only so much a position coach can do outside of the scheme that these guys are working in. So if you're 
if your defensive scheme or offensive scheme is one way, you can teach guys how to play that scheme, but you, how much are you really doing as far as making them better on a week-to-week basis? I don't really know. It seems like they're more you're more likely to have a position coach who screws things up because he doesn't know what's going on or isn't doesn't understand the offense as well as the players. Uh, I think you saw some evidence of that with Frank Signetti Jr., the quarterback's coach for the Packers this year. Um, you watch a couple of his media sessions and see if he really understands what's going on there. Um, I wonder sometimes if it's more about not taking stuff off the table than what you bring to the table. And I realize I'm throwing that in there after just praising uh, Frank Pollock and a, uh, some sort of statistical measure of the coach he could be. But I think you, th- you see what I'm trying to say. Even if you don't see what I'm trying to say, we're going to move on here. I'd like to wrap up today's show by talking about our advanced stats project. Advanced kind of in air quotes because these aren't, I don't know if truly advanced stats. They're advanced for us. And I call them advanced because it's more than just looking at a box score to figure them out. Um, we tracked three semi-advanced stats in 2018. I mentioned them a few times on various podcasts throughout the year. If you'd like to see them for yourself, you can go to thepowersweep.com slash advanced stats and take a look at everything that we're doing there. The three stats that we looked at, um, we looked at because we thought they would give us a deeper understanding of what's going on with the Packers, help us get a little bit more context for what's going on with this team in ways that the traditional box score score didn't. It also came from an effort of of trying to be more transparent than some of the other places that um, that run their own advanced metrics um, to varying degrees. One of the consistent punching bags on this show and, and thepowersweep.com has been Pro Football Focus, who has their merits, but I think some of the drawbacks to what they do are that nobody really understands their process. And they've gotten a little bit better at being a little, a little more transparent, but still some stuff they do, it's just, it's hard to explain. We wanted to come up with some stats that could be completely transparent. You would see exactly the way that they were calculated, the way that we were tracking them, stuff like that. And the three stats we landed on were called the ball hawk index, usage rate, and explosive plays. We'll define each of those as we go through them. But I'd, I wanted to take just one section, one segment of, of a show and see where things went and what we learned from these numbers this year as we start to review the 2018 season. So ball hawks. Ball hawks are an effort to measure how often a defense and individual players are getting to the ball. The ball hawks index tracks the combined total of the times a player sacks the quarterback, defends a pass, forces a fumble, or gets an interception. All the plays that you can make that have a direct effect on the ball. All of my football coaches growing up at every level made the same, used the same cliche point. They call it football because it's about the football. On defense, you're trying to get it. On offense, you're trying to keep it away from the defense and get it in the end zone. And if you don't have the football, there's very little you can do to affect the outcome of the game. It's all about the football. Everybody is either carrying the football or reacting to the football. And in 2018, according to our numbers, the Packers really continued a terrible trend of not getting to the ball. Alex, uh, Jair Alexander led the Packers with 12 and a half ball hawks this year. That is the smallest total for a Packers leader in a single season since 2014. 
not great. Further, only two defensive backs, the guys you'd expect to be getting their hands on the ball the most, only two defensive backs broke the 10 ball hawk mark this year, Jair Alexander and Josh Jackson, or yeah, Josh Jackson. Haha, Clinton Dix would have been the third. He had eight before he was traded, but wasn't on the team the whole year, so you can't exactly count those stats he was putting up in Washington. Two defensive backs is the second lowest amount of players on defense who have broken the pa- uh, broken the 10 ball hawk mark since 2014. In 2017, only one defensive back had more than 10. In 16, it was five. In 15, if it was three. And in 14, the Packers again had five defensive backs break the 10 ball hawk mark. The Packers have not been good in their secondary at getting to the ball recently. Two other guys you'd expect to be getting to the ball a lot really weren't this year. That'd be Clay Matthews and Nick Perry. Nick Perry obviously dealt with injury issues this year, but still not great. He only had five and a half ball hawks this year. Matthews, four and a half. Just an incredibly steep decline, too, for Clay Matthews over the past five years or so. Uh, One of the hallmarks of early Clay Matthews was he was around the ball all the time, and that's something you saw even in 2014 when he was playing a little bit of inside linebacker. That year, he had 23 ball hawks. The next year, down to 10.5. The next year, down to 9. In 2017, he was at 10.5 again. This year, down to 4.5. Clay Matthews just simply cannot get to the ball anymore. And Nick Perry, it's not really clear if he ever really could all that regularly either. Uh, Dating back to 2016, he has only broken the 10 ball hawk mark one time. Not super great. So that's ball hawks. Is this a good stat? I think it is, but we need to do a better job of contextualizing and breaking down the difference between position groups, which can be a little bit hard, but I think it's a worthwhile pursuit. Uh, We've worked through a bunch of Packers data recently to make it easier to look at how guys have been doing in recent Packers history. If you're interested, dating back to 2014, we now have five full years in our database of this stat. The single season record for ball hawks is Julius Peppers with 24 in 2014. I know there were some better years before that. Top of my head, I think um, Charles Woodson had like 33 and a half in 2009. So that's pretty wild. Um, the defensive back record is Demarius Randall with 17 in 2015. And the defensive line record is Kenny Clark with 10 in 2018. He had a pretty good year, didn't he? Good stuff from Kenny Clark. Looking forward to seeing him play next year. Overall, though, I think this is a good way to kind of look at what the Packers are doing in terms of getting to the ball. We need to do a better job of looking at the NFL totals. But as we move into 2019, that is one of our goals. So keep an eye out for that. Usage rate was the second of the three stats we mentioned. This was an effort to look at how many plays out of a given game are directed toward a particular player. So snap counts are great, but what I really want to know is, say the Packers, in a given week, let's say week one of this past season, ran 60 plays. Who on the offense is ending up as the target of those 60 plays? This stat was born in basketball, where there's a lot more ways that you can end a possession. But basically, I wanted to look at the guys who are on the receiving end of every play. So I looked at carries, targets, interceptions, sacks, 
and untargeted passes a little bit. Um, the real the real big four there are the carries, the targets, the inter, uh, the interceptions thrown, and sacks because those are four ways that you can end a play, that you can be the focus of a play. And what we learned this year is that the Packers were kind of balanced in a really weird way. Three players ended the season with a usage rate of 15% or higher. Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams, and Devontae Adams were all the focus of 15% or more of offensive plays in 2018. It's the first time in the time that we've been taking a look at this that uh, a running back, or two running backs, excuse me, have cracked the 15% mark. It's not entirely uncommon for 15% of guys or 15, uh, a single player to crack 15%. That's happened almost every year since 2014. The only year it didn't was 2016. But what's interesting, like I said, is, is the two running backs being that high up. And I suspect if Aaron Jones had not missed as many games as he did this year due to injury and suspension, it may have only been one running back because I think if they could go back and do the 2018 season over again, I don't think they'd waste as much time as they did with Ty Montgomery. Jamal Williams is one issue on on his own, but um, I think Ty Montgomery ended up taking a lot more away from the Packers offense than we realized. A bunch of guys on this year's team also had pretty small roles. And I think that's probably a good thing because it shows that you can attack a, a defense in a variety of ways. Some of that was due to injury. Other, others was just spreading the ball around. But seven players on this year's team saw between 2 and 8.5% or so of the offense come their way. I think that's pretty interesting. It's hard to put that in context with previous years because this stat, as I've learned, is very much a year-by-year thing. It doesn't do much good to say, well, this guy had a usage rate of this in 2016, but by 2018 it was down to this, unless you really want to chart a guy's decline or something like that, or a guy's rise. Devontae Adams has seen his usage rate go way up over the past couple of years. Shouldn't be a super big surprise. But where this really, I think, gets interesting is when you look at the week-to-week numbers. And a good case study for that is the Packers and their use of Aaron Jones. Usage rate really doesn't dispel the idea that the Packers didn't use Aaron Jones well, but it also doesn't support it either. Early in the season, Aaron Jones obviously didn't get used that much. And like I said, that's probably as much a result of Ty Montgomery being involved as as anything. But for most of early of the early part of the season, Jones and Jamal Williams had almost identical usage rates within less than a percent in most weeks. It's weird that in 2018, after almost 10 years of using one running back almost exclusively for seasons at a time, this year Mike McCarthy decided that, you know what, I'm going to split up all my carries. That was kind of weird. Once the Packers did start using Aaron Jones, though, they rode him pretty hard. From weeks 8 through 14, Jones was the focus of at least 20% of the Packers' plays in all but one game, and at least 25% of their plays in all but two. So should he have been getting getting the ball more early in the season? Yeah, but once they started giving him the ball, 
that's about the peak. How much more can one guy sustainably get the ball? And you, you saw he ended up breaking down a little bit down the stretch. I think it, it shows that once they figured it out, the Packers did use Aaron Jones pretty well. Interestingly, interestingly though, that one sub-20% game was the Packers' loss to the Cardinals in Week 13, which is as good a reason as any, I think, to fire Mike McCarthy. Because if you're losing to the Cardinals in a game and you're still not giving the ball to Aaron Jones, that's not great, Bob. So is this a good stat? I think so. I think this is a good stat because it helps us learn more about how involved a guy really is getting in the offense. Snap counts don't always show us that, and Jimmy Graham is a good example. The first nine weeks of the season, he was pretty reliably in the low teens, only below 8% usage once. Week 10 through the end of the season, though, he only surpassed 8% one time. What happened? Well, in week 10, the Packers, or excuse me, week, week 11, the Packers handled, handled the Dolphins pretty well. Didn't really need Jimmy Graham in that one, so he only got the one target. Then in week 12, he broke his thumb early in the Seahawks game, and from that point through the rest of the end of the season, he was basically a decoy. His snap count stayed pretty much the same. The Packers didn't bother getting him involved in the offense at all. They probably should have just shut him down. Had his usage rate continued as it had been early in the season, his stats probably would have looked a lot better. But... They insisted on keeping him out on the field and not using him at all. And that really ended up being a problem. Finally, explosive plays. What are explosive plays? Explosive plays are running, run plays that gain 12 or more yards and pass plays that gain 16 or more yards. Why do we use those numbers? Well, multiple NFL coaches who you can just search some stuff about this on the internet, use those numbers as kind of their benchmark for what they consider big plays or explosive plays or chunk plays. Other other sources use different numbers, 15 yards for a run, 20 yards for a pass. These are the numbers we use because this is what we've seen from NFL coaches. There is a high correlation between drives that have an explosive play and drives that end in a touchdown. So if you have an explosive play on a drive, there's a good chance you're going to end that drive with a score. And this one to me was really interesting to look at because you could see the Packers' offense fall apart very precipitously just by looking at the explosive plays. Weeks 1 through 10, the Packers averaged just under 8 explosive plays a game. Even if they weren't winning games, they were putting up explosive plays fairly regularly. Weeks 11 through 17... Not so much the case. They average just 6.2 explosive plays per game. And if you don't count the six, uh, 13 explosive plays they had in week 16, that number drops all the way down to 5.2 explosive plays per game. The offense just stopped being able to put up those big plays. And it really derailed the Packers' chances in 2018. There's a bunch of interesting stuff that Gary's putting together on how the Packers' defense performed with explosive plays. They actually did about the same from 2017 to 2018, but I'll let him tell you that full story in a post that you should be watching for at thepowersweep.com. Individual players. Devontae Adams was an absolute beast. His 29 explosive plays is the second most by any single Packers player since 2014. Randall Cobb had 31 in 2014. Interesting to note, 
Devontae Adams ended up with fairly similar stats to Antonio Brown this year, but he had six more explosive plays last year than Antonio Brown did on only one more target over the same amount of games. Interesting, I thought, to note. Speaking of Randall Cobb, these explosive plays really show his decline from guy who is actually good to guy who is just pretty good to guy who's just there even though a lot of people like him. In 2014, we said he had 31 explosive plays. In 2015, that was down to 21. 16, it drops again to 12. 2017, down to 10. And then 2018, just six explosive plays for Randall Cobb. He just looks like a guy who has no juice at all anymore. Finally, rookies got into the action in some interesting ways this year. You'd have thought that Marquez Valdez-Scantling would be a lot more explosive than uh, Equinemius St. Brown, but they actually ended up both producing 10 explosive plays. That's not a lot, less than one per game on average, but still, to get 20 explosive plays out of two day three receivers, I think is pretty good for the Packers in 2018, and I think bodes pretty well for their receiving core headed into 2018, or 2019, excuse me. While I've got you here, I just wanted to, to, to say that stuff like this is why we need your support. We want to have the time, the resources to be able to do more stuff like this. We want to expand the lineup of stats that that we're able to talk about in, in 2019. And if you are inclined to support us, I want to call out the great stuff that we have going on at teespring.com. You can click the store link at thepowersweep.com and see our cool t-shirts, stickers, sweatshirts, all sorts of stuff there. I think they're pretty reasonably priced. Uh, I think they are all great. I've got a couple of them myself. Uh, wear them regularly, and they hold up really nicely. I, I would really appreciate it if you would consider supporting us through through checking out some of the apparel there. Uh, no pressure, but it is a good way to support the things that we do. And if you find value out of the things that we do, uh, I really would appreciate your support. And I, I really, it, it does mean a lot to me, even if that support is is just as little as sharing the articles and podcasts and stuff that we put together means a lot. That's all I've got for you on this particular episode. You can find us as you always do at thepowersweep.com and on Facebook and on Twitter. Reach out via email if you'd be so kind at thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com. Already talked about support, but the freest and easiest way to support us as always is by leaving a review on the podcast platform of your choice. It helps more people to find the show. We do love to hear from you. Any feedback you give us helps us make this entire operation better and helps all of us become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I've been your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.